0: Hi, I'm David Goforth, pastor at Grace Baptist Church. So glad that you're taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I want to let you know we're here to help you. If you have any questions, please visit our website, gbcwc.org. and Contact us. We'd love to help. Take your Bibles, open them up, if you would please, to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. We are in a middle of a series called Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically. And this, this part of the series is just thinking biblically about evangelism. Thinking biblically about evangelism, there are numerous different, I guess, divisions within Christianity when you get to what soteriology is. What part does man play? What part does God play? I am not going to debate those, not going to try to get into that debate. I want to talk about something that is very, very pervasive, and I want to say up front, it's not wrong, it's not sinful, it's not bad. But it is something that we have to think biblically about and make sure that we are thinking correctly as we use it. Now, there are a lot of phrases that we use as Christians that mean something to Christians that don't necessarily mean anything to people outside. Okay, like Think about it. We use the phrase, boy, the, the one saving grace of something. And when we, when we think about saving grace, we're, that's a big deal. I mean, there's one thing about it that that's going to uh, do that. My my family in particular, if they're going to talk about somebody and they're going to say something about uh, their character is less than it should be, or that they were behaving inappropriately, uh, my my mom and my sister likes to use the phrase, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Um, that's another phrase that comes right out of the Bible, but then there are other christianese words that we sometimes use christianese words like um, ask jesus into your heart and, and again i want to make sure that you understand i'm not preaching against some of you say well i asked jesus into my heart are, are you telling me i i don't want you to get up and run out of the church i want you I want you to think through this asking jesus into your heart give your heart to jesus accept jesus as your savior there are different reasons why people say different things. And I want to challenge you on a, a particular mindset that I have seen that is somewhat uh, pervasive, at least in my circles. Now, this may not be your circle at all. This, You may say, Pastor, go that You have the weirdest people that you hang around. I don't see what you're talking about. But what I'm talking about is this idea that there is a certain mathematical equation to salvation. And what I mean by mathematical, okay, mathematical meaning A certain equation that if you put the right things in, it always works out. So mathematical equation, this plus this always equals this. And sometimes it has worked its way out in many ways. Let me tell you, as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times, because I haven't counted it, but it is frequent that a parent will come to me and say, my child says they're saved, but I was listening to them when they prayed and they did not pray right. And I would ask the parent, what do you mean they didn't pray right? I mean, were they praying to God or were they praying to their teddy bear? What do you, what do you mean they, don't, they weren't praying right? And what do you think most of the time they're referring to when they say they didn't pray right? That mathematician, a sinner's prayer, sometimes we would call it, or using the right equation of saying, Jesus, the, the different, everybody has a little different twist on the sinner's prayer, but basically the sinner's prayer usually boils down to, Recognition that you're a sinner, recognition that you need the Savior, accepting the Savior, asking him to take you to heaven when you die. Or thanking him for taking you to heaven when you die. Something along those lines. And so uh, there, there are many folks that will talk about that. I know that um, I have dealt with many, many teenagers who have routinely said, well, Pastor, go forth every night before I go to sleep. I pray the sinner's prayer one more time just in case. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and save me. And and they prayed over and over because there's a lack of assurance. Now, on the flip side of that, I have gone to teenagers and said, hey, I'm concerned for your salvation. And they've looked at me and gone, (laughs) silly, silly youth pastor. Miss Peter's class, first grade, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I know I'm a Christian. And when I talk to them and say, well, but there's nothing else in your life that says you're a Christian, that does not matter. They they look at me and say, "I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I was there, I I got I got dunked. I, I know I, I know I'm a Christian. I prayed the sinner's prayer. And when I would talk to them about, well, how do you know you're a Christian? the answer was because I've accepted Jesus into my heart. And 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 it gets in there. Then there's uh, different situations where we have folks that we've talked to about salvation and you wonder when we have Jesus Christ himself saying in Matthew chapter seven that there's going to be many that come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we, we worked for you and did lots of wonderful things for you that he's gonna turn, look at them and say, what? Depart. You're done. I never knew you. And so what I wanna do is I want to look at one one particular passage That we have often looked at. Now, I believe that there is nothing wrong. There's nothing intrinsically sinful about any of those phrases necessarily. But it is something that we need to make sure that we clarify. We make sure that we understand. Because there are certain things, certain words that we use in context that we clarify for the other person. Like using the word love. Think of all the things we use the word love for. I love my children. Yes. I love my husband, I love my wife, I love chocolate, I love steak, I love football, I love macaroni and cheese. We, we, right away, I don't need to give you any context, you give context to it. If I say I love my wife, and I say I love macaroni and cheese, you put it into context, and your brain says, not the same. Hopefully, right, we did that? Okay, hopefully nobody looked up here and went so that's tubby's problem okay now hopefully you said okay here's the context here's what's happening and so using phrases like asking jesus into your heart or even using the sin, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the sinner's prayer but what i have seen is 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 almost a turning toward the sinner's prayer and the sinner's prayer and a couple of verses that we're going to look at here in romans 10 that folks have used to support that what verses do you think i'm going to talk about in romans 10 Any guesses? 9, 10, 13. Let's look at them. Let's look at 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I have actually heard individuals teach that you are not officially saved until you confess with your mouth that you believe in Jesus Christ. And there are some traditions that will actually have the person make a public confession as part of the process of salvation. So if they were to come forward in a revival service or get saved at home or something, they would have them stand in front of the, uh, uh, their church and somehow profess or confess that they believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes it's more formal. They go through a class and then they are stood up in front of everybody and said, I have I finished this. Other times, it's just stood up in front of the church and the pastor will ask, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you? Are you trusting him? And, and they will verbally say something to that and they will in their mind say, okay, now listen, I'm not saying, uh, we used to do something very Pastor Kelly did something very similar to that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having people stand up and make a confession or make a profession, but we need to understand what is the biblical teaching to make sure that we have it solidly clear in our minds. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because we have a lot of Awana workers here. We have a lot of folks that work with kiddos that are here that are not usually here. And so I thought this would be a great time to jump into it. Because I think a better way for us to think of it is not, have you accepted Jesus, but has Jesus accepted you? Now, again, there are problems with that if you just lock into that phrase and you start trusting that phrase. We're not trusting that phrase, but just to get the thinking right, instead of asking somebody, hey, have you accepted Jesus? Are you acceptable to Jesus? Are you accepted by Jesus? And that, I mean, that, would, that would get a lot of folks, especially here in the South, thinking, because I think they've heard, are you born again? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? But if you ask them, are you acceptable to Jesus? They might go, what do you mean? Are you accepted by him? Uh, to get them to think. Because the truth is, if the truth, if the truth is understood and followed, then I think they would get that. But that's not the message. I want to look at it. This, I, I did a little bit of research because that's some of the things they like to do. I was trying to figure out how long the sinner's prayer has been around. How many of you know the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible? You, you know that, right? So, so we don't have to go through. There, there's no anything close to the sinner's prayer in the Bible. However, most Independent Baptist tracts will have some form of the sinner's prayer on it. There's no mention. There are times when people profess faith in Jesus Christ. There's no mention of them praying. Philippian Jailer is one. He said, what what must I do? Paul said, believe. And then next thing we know, Philippian Jailer is a Christian. We We don't hear him saying, believe and pray this or do this. Okay, so I started looking into it. I found a couple of interesting things out. Um. In 2011, Barna, the Barna Research Group, did a a research on the sinner's prayer. Uh, Fully more than 55% of Americans have prayed, they they say personally, they have prayed the sinner's prayer. Okay, And I think that's just proof enough. 55% of America is not saved. right? can, Can we agree on that? So it's not the sinner's prayer that saves. And I don't think that you think the sinner's prayer saves. But I started looking into it, and I found the first reference to it in print. Now this comes from a book in the 1700s. And can I tell you something they did not mess around when they gave their books titles in the 1700s. Nowadays the title has to be like small. You know like trusting God or growing in grace. Listen to this title. Christ's suit to the sinner while he stands and knocks at the door, a sermon preached in a time of great awakening at the Tuesday evening lecture in Brattle Street Boston October 17 October 13. 1741 by John Webb, a pastor of a church of the Christ in Boston. That's the title. Most of you would give up reading the book before you got through the title. He'd be like, nah, "This one's too long." <laughs> That's just the title. But in that book, this is 1700s. Okay, so so we're looking at 300 years ago. Okay, this is the first time that we ever see this. Listen to what he says. This is this is John Webb preaching. He said. Here is a promise of union to Christ in these words. I will come into him. In other words, if any sinner will but hear my voice and open the door and receive me by faith, I will come into his soul, unite him to me and make him a living member of that my mystical body of which I am the head. Now some of you may say, that doesn't sound exactly like the sinner's prayer that I remember saying, but that is the, the, the first mention of if you will accept by faith, he will enter in. Uh, enter into you and do that now is there is, is there biblical precedence for the sinner's prayer no but is there biblical precedence for some of the different things the sinner's prayer talks about or those phrases accepting jesus into your heart or, or taking jesus well uh there is language of accepting them you know this john 1 12, right but as many as received him to them gave you power to do what so there you go. There, there is a clear picture of salvation has something to do with receiving and being accepted by God. So there, there is precedence. I want you to know that the idea of somebody saying, have you accepted Christ, that is not unbiblical. And I, it, it kind of irritates me, people that stand up and say, that's an unbiblical phrase, you shouldn't. It's not. For as many as received him, to them gave he power. Um, Ephesians 3.17, Paul, Paul says one of his prayers was that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. John fourteen seventeen. Jesus said, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth in, he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So there we have the promise of the Spirit being sent to dwell in you. So accepting Jesus inside or taking things in. And <clears throat> we don't know, I don't know when it was definitively uh, defined to try to explain to children, okay, Jesus is going to come in. I have very clear pictures I can remember the flannel graph. Do you guys remember the flannel graph? That's going to be sad when people no longer remember the flannel graph. But I can remember the flannel graph, and I can remember what color was the heart before Jesus got there. It's black. Why was it black? It's black with sin. And what did Jesus have to do? He had to wash it. What was he going to wash it with? His blood. So the flannel graph is very clear in my mind, and I remember as a kid thinking, "How are you washing that with blood? And then Christian illusionists come along. Do you know what a Christian illusionist is? A saved magician, right? Because they don't believe in magic, amen? Christian illusionist comes along and it has that chemical mixture where it pours the other one in and it it clears it up or turns it white or whatever and this is what, and so these ideas, they're not bad pictures. But this idea of Jesus coming in, sweeping the heart out, cleaning out the heart, coming into the heart, uh, sometimes it does cause confusion. Romans 8, 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Okay? You say, Well, that, that's not a bad picture. Are there other pictures? Yes, there are other pictures. I'm not trying to be humorous. I'm trying to get you to see that there are other pictures of salvation that we don't use. Okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 36, The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. That is a clear biblical picture that is teaching something that we don't routinely teach to kids because of the uncomfortableness of circumcision. Some of you are sitting there right now praying, don't say anything else, just keep going. But that is a picture and there are some truths that that picture, there's a reason why God used those words. But it's, that's not the only thing that we should pull from Scripture to teach about salvation. Listen to Jeremiah 31. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here's a picture of actually taking the law and, and, and writing it on the heart and inscribing it in there. Okay? So it's a, it's a different picture that God is giving out here. Ezekiel 36. A new heart will I give you? So here we see three different pictures. God's going to circumcise the heart. God's going to write his law in the heart. And now eh, we're just going to switch it out. Look at it. A new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Okay? So there is a number of different pictures in the Bible. So I, and again, I'm saying this because I want you to know, I think it is okay to illustrate salvation in different ways. God illustrates it in different ways. I'm not trying to tell you that what I, that what we're going to go through here today is the new doctrine and covenants for Grace Baptist Church of how we're going to talk about salvation. I want to talk specifically about the idea of asking Christ into your heart, praying the sinner's prayer, believing, confessing. What does it mean to believe and to confess. I believe most of the time when parents come and they have questions, they're not so much questions as far as whether or not the sinner's prayer was prayed. Is, it, is, is their kid really able to believe? Is their child old enough to be able to, to have the, the concept, to be able to believe, to be able to pull that in? Okay. So what are the, what are the problems intrinsic to using that phrase or using um, Romans ten nine and 10? Well, we'll get to the, We'll get to 10, 9, and 10 in a second. But what's the problem with just saying, well, hey, why do we have to mess with this, Pastor? Go over this. It's worked for decades. What is the issue? Well, I I think, let me just point some things out. Is, Is number one, Christ or the apostles, neither one of them led in a prayer. We never see them leading anybody in a prayer. Jesus Christ talked to Nicodemus, never led him in a prayer. Jesus Christ talked to Peter, never led him in a prayer. The apostles talked to numerous individuals, never led them in a prayer. Listen, you cannot interact with God without praying. I am not saying you don't have to pray. But I am saying that this idea that a prayer or a certain type or a certain style or a certain design of prayer is necessary is what we have to start thinking biblically about. Okay, problem number two is that in many circles, it seems to have entirely replaced the idea of repentance and faith. Believe and confess. Believe and confess. Confess. Do you believe? I have met an individual who would he he talked frequently about the number of people that he led to the Lord over the weekend. And I thought, how do you keep leading this many people to the Lord? And he said, Oh, it's simple. I've learned this. I'll challenge somebody and I'll say, hey, if you actually believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you believe that he died and rose again, then you take my hand. And if they take my hand, they're professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're a Christian. And I said, What do you tell them if they do take your hand? I tell them that they're a Christian. I told him, I don't I don't think that's wise. And and we actually had words. Um, because i I don't think that just having somebody shake your hands if they do and uh, do i have bible to support that well before i give you my bible do you have bible to support that is there anybody who believes that jesus died and rose again that's not a christian do you think the devil believes he rose again what does he what does he do in response to that according to james he trembles he's not a believer you say, wait, I thought you said he did believe. Yes, I'm, use, I'm interchanging the words to try to confuse you because that's what happens sometimes. I believe the devil understands and truly knows, believes that Christ died and rose again. He believes that. He trembles. He does not believe to salvation. Okay? Now, th- this has almost entirely replaced that aspect of it. The third problem that I see intrinsic to this is that this, this idea of believe and confess, believe and confess, it almost, it almost has transmogrified into some type of a Baptist work. We say, you don't have to work for salvation, transformed into a work. You don't have to work for salvation. Salvation is free, but you have to believe and confess. And, and, I've, and I've met some folks that, well, you know, I, I, they've, got to, they've got to confess it. They've got to have their, this has to happen because if they don't do this, and, and again, I think that comes from taking Romans 10, 9, and 10 out of context. And then here, here's the last problem, is that many times I've listened to a few sermons, and I was, I was actually thinking about bringing a couple of sermons out and playing them. But my purpose, here's the thing, my purpose is not to attack individuals. And I don't think it's really fair to pull one sermon out and to pull one illustration out of something that was said, read it to you or let you hear it, and then pick it apart Because I I don't know the entire context of of everything he was teaching around that. But it seems to me as if this idea of believe, confess, believe, confess, believe, confess, has wormed its way backward into biblical interpretation, our hermeneutic. Where we say, here's what it says. And so they will use Romans 10. listen, Romans 10, 9 and 10 is a glorious verse. There's a reason why it's one of the most well-known verses, because it just very succinctly says, hey, this is what has to happen. But we have to interpret things in context to understand, okay? So uh, let's look at it. So all I want to do is, again, I want to think like the, the Bereans, Acts 17. More noble than Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched to see if it was so. So we're there in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Let's just look at it, try to get the context. Now tonight, we're not going to go we're not going to dive deep into Greek and parsing and things like that because some of you are still upset with me for doing that a couple weeks ago. So we're not going to do that tonight. We're just going to look at the context, just see what's happening here in Romans, okay? Now remember, Romans was the was the, the the very genesis of the the Protestant Reformation that completely transformed the world when Martin Luther was studying this and looking at what sanctification, what salvation what remission of sins was, he could not get through the book of Romans without realizing, hey, what they are teaching is wrong. And again, that goes back to, that's why we believe in the authority of the Bible. But here in Romans 10, Paul is arguing for biblical salvation. Okay, so we won't go through, he's, he's talked in, 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 Well, we won't go through everything that's happened up to chapter 9. Chapter 9, he's talked about how God chooses and how God brings people along. But here in chapter 10, he's talking about how the children of Israel kind of got off kilter. Let's look at it, verse 1. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Why is that important? Because Paul is trying to let them know, my desire is not to run people off or tell people that they're losers. My job is for you to understand. Because many times people are fighting about the same thing. Have you ever done that in your marriage? you're trying you, you both wanted to eat somewhere but you end up fighting about what to eat you were agreed on that you wanted to eat i see some of you looking at each other you know what i'm talking about it's not like one wants to eat and the other one wants to go ice skating you both want to eat but you fight over the eating pool well, there are a lot of people who fight over salvation and, about silly things and paul is saying listen i'm not i'm not here to pick a fight my desire is that you know christ my desire is that you are saved my heart's desire and prayer this is it so he wants you to know that. Verse 2. For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. A lot of people have taken this out of context and said, okay, that's for people who, you know, brand new, say, they don't know much about the Lord, they're running out. No, no, no. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about these people are working hard to try to accomplish salvation. But they don't know what they're doing. In fact, they're putting more effort into it and more effort into it, and they have codified things. And what we look at sometimes, and what I used to look at as crazy, man, why would, you, why would you worry about something weighing more than half a fig? That's how detailed they got because they wanted to make sure they were trying to keep the law. That is a lot of zeal. They had zeal without knowledge, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. What does that mean? They were so focused on trying to please God that they left trying to please God and tried to establish their own self. They forgot to look to God. They forgot to sit down with God. They forgot to study God's word. They studied what the different rabbis and different priests taught and they argued back and forth between this rabbi and this rabbi. They said they went about to establish their own righteousness. They didn't listen to what God had in His Word. Let's keep moving. Verse 4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is the end of the law. If they would have followed the law, they would be exactly where I am, is what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, listen, it, had they followed, had they actually done what God had intended for them to do, when Christ showed up, they would have rejoiced, not rejected Him. But because they were so locked into trying to make their own, they, they didn't see when it came, okay? So, verse 5. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Paul is saying that this This is the key to understanding what real salvation is. Listen. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ to down from above. It is not the superlative of your activities, the superlativeness of your faith, your high ability to believe, your high ability to perform. You cannot reach up into the heavens and accomplish that, okay? Verse 7, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. It's beyond your power to do anything that actually had to be done for your righteousness. What had to be done? Christ had to be incarnated into flesh, live a sinless life, die on the cross, rise from the dead. How much of that can you or I do? Right. It's simple. Now, to you and I, 2,000 years after the writing of the Bible, we go, but to a generation after generation after generation of Jew who had been living by what they had been attempting to do is see... The law was supposed to guide them to Christ. Think of it as like a railroad track that was supposed to keep them on the straight and narrow moving forward. Well, they ripped the railroad track up and they tried to turn it into a ladder. They said, we don't, we don't need to stay on this railroad track and, and stay between these rails here. We need to point it up toward the sky and see how high we can climb it and see if we can, can achieve and, and do this. And they completely took the law out of what it was supposed to do. They tried to ascend up to the heaven can't do it and Paul's saying you cannot accomplish it is absolutely impossible so the first thing of Romans 10 the first thing we learned from Romans 10 is that Paul says you and I are absolutely incapable listen get this of doing anything to secure our salvation let that sink in for a second you can't ascend to the heaven you can't descend to the grave There is nothing that can actually procure righteousness. Except, Paul, look what he says. But, verse 8, what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now we have these verses memorized, but let's look at them. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead; thou shalt be saved. Those shouts, those give us a little indication of the tense of the verb. It says, if you will do this, you will be saved. What is it that you have to do? He says, confess with mouth and believe in heart. Okay. So look at verse ten. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and mouth confession is made unto salvation. Most of the time when we talk about salvation, we don't talk about both sides of it. We talk about one side. The side we talk about, especially the side that I'm used to, when I say we, let me say I. When I, when I would talk to people, I'm talking about the salvation part of it, right? What are we saved from? Have you ever had anybody who's talking to you and ask them if they're saved and they go, saved from what? Has it ever kind of caught you off and go, what do you mean saved from what? Everybody knows you have to be saved from. You have to be saved from what? Do you, do you feel bad saying that word in church? It's in the Bible. Where do we save from? Death, hell, sin, wickedness, wrath. So that's salvation. That's the negative side. Not the negative side as in that's the bad side, but that's what the saving does on the negative side. What does the saving do on the positive side? According to verse 10. So negative, it saves us salvation, but positive, it gives us what? Righteousness. So, righteousness, this is, this is talking about the same thing. It's talking about the same salvation, different sides of the coin. You're saved to what? Righteousness. Saved from sin, wrath, hell, wickedness, death. Bad stuff saved from, good stuff saved to. And so, Paul is saying this salvation comes to you. Now, he, he, he does two things. He, he, he uses an aorist or a past tense, if you shall. If you make this choice to do what? Confess with mouth the Lord Jesus. How do we interpret God's word? If God put a word in there, we believe the word is in there, that it's his word, right? He's not giving us a concept. He's not giving us an idea. Okay? So confess. What does confess mean? Confess means what? As far as you know. Agree with? Okay. I think literally it's something along the lines of to say the same. So in other words, if you're going to confess to a crime and we, I think we have some police officers in here and some judges, if you're going to confess to a crime, they, if they are going to confess to a crime, they can't just say, yeah, I done some stuff. Is that correct? If they say, Hey, you're being arrested for. And if they say, okay, i done some stuff. That doesn't mean that they confess to anything. Their lawyer would say they didn't confess anything. Say, he said he did some stuff. No, no, that's not confessing. Confessing is what? You say I did this, I say I did that. I agree, I say the same. Okay? Now the interesting thing is, is that in verse 10 he says the first thing you do is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now there is some truth hidden in here that is going to challenge some of us because there has been some folks who have overshot the runway. That's what Pastor Kelly used to call it, overshot the runway. We, we think of the term Lord as just a religious term. Lord is what you call God. It's another word for Lord. However, when the Bible was written, were other people besides God referred to? As Lord, who was referred to as Lord? Your your master. Okay. So if you're if you're watching some old, uh, I like I like watching the old movies with the uh, anything with swords and battle axes, Vikings, knights, you know things like that. I, actually, I you know I, I don't mind lightsabers and other things like that too. But but there will be there if, if you watch some of these things, they, they'll say, um, listen. You need to swear an oath. Now, in our culture, the word swear, at least to me, growing up in a Christian home, in a Christian school, swear makes me go... And if somebody were to walk up and say, like, if I would have come here to Grace and the pulpit gave me, they said, would you be willing to swear? I would think, probably not. I mean, I'd have to meet all the deacons, you know, <laughs> but probably not. That was a joke. That was a joke, folks. Okay? But in the... Olden days, if they said, hey, are you willing to swear? You knew what that meant. I'm going to swear an oath. And and are you willing to swear to them as Lord? If you're going to swear to them as Lord, what does that mean? That that that, that was just a commonplace. Listen, there there were Pliny in his writings. I know some of you don't like it when I refer to history, so I'm going to make it short. But Pliny actually writing to somebody said, It's really easy to figure out who a Christian is and who's not a Christian. Just bring them in in front of a bust of Caesar and have them swear to Caesar. Because Christians can't do that. But non Christians can come in, can swear to Caesar. Then after they swear to Caesar, you can ask them to defame the name of Christ. They'll do it, they'll make a sacrifice. Pliny was like, Man, all this problem of trying to figure out who a Christian is, it's super simple. You just bring him in, put him in front of a Caesar, uh, bus to Caesar and say, swear to Caesar. And what did that mean? They didn't mean they went into Caesar and said, you Caesar, you're a low down, no good. That's not what it meant. It meant what? I, Caesar is Lord. I, th- I think the Greek word was, was it's like Caesar, it's like Kaiser Kurios. And so the Christians would come in and they couldn't say those two words. It was impossible because swearing meant something different. But he starts with the mouth. He says, you confess with your mouth, have to keep moving, and believe in your heart. Now, what is it that you have to believe? It's just one phrase. What is it you have to believe? That God raised him from the dead. Now, packed into that phrase, okay, this is not saying you don't have to believe that Jesus is God you don't have to believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity. You don't have to believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. All you have to believe was that he got up. Did you know there's an actual, I, I, in, in apologetics, I've studied different things. There, there is one of the, uh, there's a, a, a Jewish, well, I don't know what they call him. It wouldn't be a rabbi. But he is what I would think of as a rabbi that said, yeah, it's, it's basically, it is according to our own writings. It's a pretty, pretty much, you can't debate historically that we at least thought Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't willing to go so far as to say, you know, our writings prove that Jesus rose to the dead. But he said, yes, our writings do prove that they thought that he did. Okay? It's not just saying that when Paul says you have to believe, this confessing Lord Jesus, believing in your heart. And then in verse 10, it says, for with the heart he believes and with the mouth confesses. Now in the Hebrew world, what was the heart a symbol of? Everything. So we still use that today. I love you with all my heart. That means everything I've got, I love you. And we use the heart. We know the heart does not involve the brain. We know those different things, but when when the the Hebrew expression of the heart, that means the the whole, the center of being. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life, Proverbs 4. So we, we know that what this is saying, he's not saying that you just have an inkling toward a certain thing, but this believe in your heart, this is actually saying, I am agreeing, I believe Jesus is exactly who Jesus claimed to be. That is a much, much, much more difficult thing to confess to. Did Jesus, can the devil confess that Jesus rose from the dead? Oh yeah, he can say, yeah, he rose from the dead. Can he believe with all of his heart? Well, what does that mean? Believing with all the heart, that means everything that Jesus said, just some of the things about Jesus rising from the dead. If, if we're going to believe that everything, every claim that he made, everything that he taught is wrapped up in that because it's all, he himself, and we're not going to take time because it's 804, he himself talked about dying and rising from the dead. When you hear somebody stand up and they say, well, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. No, either, either he was God or he was a nut. And I'm not saying that to be sacrilegious. Jesus Christ did not give us a lot of good things to think about and then just, like on the weekend, talk about dying and getting back up. That was central to his message. And central to his message, he took a year to teach it to the disciples. Leaving uh, Caesarea Philippi, he said, Who says that I'm the Christ? Or or, or who am I? And Peter says, You're the Christ. Jesus said, That's right, and I'm going to die. And Peter said, No, we're not going to let you die. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the right way. You're treasuring man's ideas, not God's ideas. It's kind of a big deal that I die, Peter, and I'm going to keep teaching you this. Okay? So what are all of the things that are wrapped up in this idea of everything that Jesus taught and said? Well, we'll get that in a second. But believing in your heart means you are fully invested in that. Confessing with your mouth says... You are saying the same, agreeing with what he said. So we could, my original plan was to ask you about some of the things that Jesus said, but let's just look at some of the things that Jesus said. Okay, Jesus said that he came down from the father, that he and his father are one. Confessing and believing involves agreeing and believing and settling your heart in, resting your faith in, Jesus is God. That's what he taught. And if you're going to confess the same thing, it's wrapped up in there. Um, that, that he died a substitutionary death. Different people have different areas of this that they struggle with, with, with agreeing with. There are some people, well, there's a fellow I witnessed to for nine years in Florida that said, I don't get why if Jesus got to set the rules, why he set the rules that he had to die. That seems stupid to me. And I would say, George, that's not, he didn't set the rules. And I would go through the justness of God and and all of that. But he said, no, he could have done something different. He could have said that you have to cut down a tree to be saved. Because he was unwilling to say that Jesus had the right to die a substitutionary death. If you're going to believe and confess, then you have to put all of your hopes in, his substitutionary death that he had the right to do that and that he did that and then what did he do after it he got up you you, have got to believe that you have to you have to believe that that he obtained that salvation that 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 resurrection was the signifying of him going to the father jesus christ himself said i'm going to go to the father he said he was going to pay the sin but then there are some other things About Jesus that he said that sometimes don't get as much press and we'll start talking about those next week because it's almost time to go amen how about that for a same bat time same bat channel cliffhanger folks huh all right let's have a word of prayer and uh, and then we will go Lord thank you for the opportunity of spending some time studying your word I ask that you would bless as we uh, go our separate ways keep us fixed and focused on you help us to honor you in all that we do Lord, thank you, Lord, for your salvation, for the gift of your son. Thank you for choosing us and allowing us to choose. Thank you for being a God that we can't figure out, but a God that we can trust. Thank you. We love you. In Christ's precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you.